is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Now. <laughs> that was, I just on Skype, you just sent me one word, now. <laughs> I'm stepping my game up, baby. I imagine, I imagine you slowly turning around in a chair. <laughs> should, what, what was, should we press the button sir <laughs> no response slowly turns now <laughs> that's awesome man what's happening brother from the east coast afternoon to the west coast morning how are you man i'm, I'm good oh man you, you you gotta be feeling pretty stoked because i, I looked at your facebook page this morning and, and I saw, you know, for your new book, Don't Do Stuff You Hate, it, it said other people who bought this book also purchased. And and, and the, the list of books there were, uh, were pretty impressive, man. Oh, it was a perfect it was a perfect collection of books that kind of embody everything behind Don't Do Stuff You Hate. It was uh, The End of School by our colleague Zach Slayback, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which I cannot recommend enough. Uh, thanks to you for that recommendation. And we we actually give it to our Praxis participants when they're going through the intensive uh, writing module. Uh, the End of Jobs by Taylor Pearson, who was on this podcast. And it's such a cool book. Actually, and, and he gave me the idea to do a private Facebook group around the book. He has an End of Jobs Facebook group, which is really cool, where people just sort of share how they're sort of moving out of being an employee and taking control of their career. Uh, so we set up a Facebook group for Don't Do Stuff You Hate emulating that. And then the other one was um, The Last Safe Investment, which is a phenomenal book that we've talked about before. So yeah, uh, I loved when I saw that. Customers who bought this also bought these. Oh man, so you're going to love this, but you actually stopped me from buying the book. When, when I saw that list, I was like, man, this is so great. This is such a perfect reflection <laughs> of who he is. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> if you bought, If you bought it, it would have then said that algorithm would have been customers who bought this also bought uh, the temptation to exist. <laughs> and, and Uncle Ramsey's being, Uncle Ramsey's book of demons, <laughs> black magic, and unicorns. Uh, <laughs> how to feel good all the time. Um, <laughs> how to, how to, how to make every day feel like a rainbow. How Man, to love been... yourself. Know your <laughs> your best friend in the world. <laughs> hey, I was gonna make fun of you again this week for uh, like phrases that I think are just like super over the top saccharine. Like when you said your wife is your best friend in the world. You had another one this week. You said <laughs> you need to love yourself. Oh, yeah. Like that. There's just something about that phrase that just. Like I can't – I know the meaning of it and I value that. But something yeah, about yeah. love yourself, like the word love, it's got to be used in the right context or else it just gives me the – the I don't know. It gives me the sappies. Oh, man. That, that's too funny. Well, you know what? In, in fairness, in fairness, I, I was actually addressing a bigger issue and that is the, the tendency for some people to equate – self-improvement with self-rejection. So I, I saw a lot of a lot of uh, social media posts where people were saying things like, you know, self-improvement rests on the fallacy that there's something wrong with you. You don't need to improve yourself. You just need to accept yourself. And so the point I was making it was, look, 
loving yourself isn't consistent with evolving, with with making yourself better. It's not a false dichotomy. It's not an either or. You can love yourself. You can appreciate yourself and still be honest about the fact that there are areas of your life where you need to improve. So so in fairness, I wasn't just saying, hey, give yourself a nice warm hug. Oh, I know. I know. Everything you said was great, but I couldn't I couldn't get past that. It opened with love yourself. Um, (laughs) No, but seriously, though, that that point, it's one of those paradoxes where I think the people that I know who are the most relentlessly dedicated to self-improvement are also the people who I would say have the highest self-esteem and um, self-confidence and dare I say it, self-love. And they're also not usually arrogant at the same time. So I, th- I think there's this assumption that these are like opposites, like self-confidence and uh, humility are opposites, but usually they're not. Um, self-improvement and accepting yourself for who you are are opposites, but usually they're not. You know, the people who embody one usually embody all of them the most. And, and I, I think some of this comes from this idea that taking responsibility for your life is the same as blaming yourself for being a bad person. I've, I've come across a lot of people that struggle with the idea, which which I which I consider to be like a fundamental tenet of leadership, right? If you wanna take charge of a situation, you just gotta choose to be the kind of person who takes responsibility for all your results. Even, even if you can make a good argument that it's someone else's fault, you just gotta focus on what you can change rather than on feeling like a victim. But a lot of people have a difficult time processing that idea without equating it with blame. This is why I like to quote another cheesy guy, Wayne Dyer's statement that, you know, responsibility means you have the power to respond with ability. It doesn't mean it's your fault or you're an idiot. It just means you can do something about it. Now, Wayne Dyer uh, is probably a fan of the podcast. So, Wayne, we don't mean cheesy in a negative way. No, man, no. Uh, Wayne Dyer, we, we lost him. We lost oh, him that's earlier right. in the year. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. I remember that, actually. I remember when he passed and you shared a couple of things by him. Um, yeah. Hey, okay, so speaking of uh, customers who purchased this, also purchased, um, one of your <laughs> one of your weird, cheesy books, and you recommended it on this uh, show recently, yeah. Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. And so I bought it on your recommendation. And as soon as I got it, I almost did not read it because the cover is so <laughs> ugly. It's so badly designed. When you open it up, like the formatting and stuff, it's like it's like a GeoCities website from like 1990 or something. Just the weird, all these <laughs> inset boxes, like every chapter opens with a huge chunk in italics and a weird picture and it ends with like 15 boxes of quotes from people and I hate I hate it when a book is just full of quotes from other people. Anyway, I'm like I can't get through this thing. And you're like just <laughs> just read it a little bit. The content is awesome. I am only 3 chapters in um cuz I keep getting distracted. I'm in one of those phases where I'm hardly reading anything. I'm just like I don't know why I, I go through cycles, but the content is awesome and I want to talk about it. You, you down yeah, man. now I'm totally down. Yeah. You, you have this amazing memory when it comes to the books you've read. Do you think you're going to be able to remember if I talk a little bit about the first couple chapters? Will you remember them enough? Yeah, I, I, I totally think so, man. Yeah. Go right. ahead. So specifically the chapter, I think it's chapter two on language. Um, it's actually titled 
again, the chapter titles are horrible. They don't like communicate anything. The quantum mechanics <laughs> of Hopi Indians. Okay. That's the title of the chapter, but it's really a chapter about language and reality. And the thing, there's so many interesting things in here. He talks about, um, different tribes or, uh, different plate languages that do not have words for that have like maybe three words for color. Uh, one that actually only has two like cool and hot and all of the cool colors are represented mm -hmm. with one word and all of the hot colors with others. Um, and there are probably modifiers and things that can be used to describe other things, but, um, several languages that don't have a word for the color blue or green. Um, and he talks about what this means for reality. And so there's this hypothesis, the Sapphire Wharf hypothesis, which is two linguists um, in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. They, they hypothesize that our language actually restricts our understanding of the world. So it's not just that we understand the world in a certain way and language is merely our way of expressing our understanding. And if our language is limited, our expression is limited. No, they would actually argue that the language that's available to us actually limits our perceptive abilities. We actually cannot understand certain concepts if we don't have words for them. And this is a controversial hypothesis and he sort of goes on back and forth about it. But there are some fascinating things. And I just want to share just a couple more and then we can we can just riff on this. I want to hear your thoughts. But yeah. one in particular, he goes through, um, let me see here. Okay, I'm just going to read this this section. According to David Gill, a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, uh, Rio, I don't know how to pronounce it, Riau Indonesian is a language like many others that does not distinguish nouns and verbs. For example, the phrase, the man is swimming, might translate to a phrase that means man swim. But the same pair of words could have many other meanings as diverse as the man is making somebody swim or somebody is swimming where the man is. According to Gill, there are no modifiers that distinguish the tenses of verbs. Gill writes, Though Worf's hypothesis fell into disfavor half a century ago, it is now undergoing something of a revival. Again, that's the hypothesis that your language limits your understanding. Um, this revival is due in part to the work of Lyra Boroditsky, a researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Boroditsky conducts experiments she believes provide evidence for the structure of language, um, the way it affects the way people think. For example, she shows three pictures to people. Imagine that the pictures show one of two women, Brittany or Christina. Subjects are then shown pictures. Picture one, Brittany is about to kick a ball. Picture two, Brittany just finished kicking the ball. Picture three, Christina is about to kick the ball. Okay, here's where it's interesting. Indonesians choose photos one and two as being most similar. Brittany about to kick the ball. Brittany just finished kicking the ball. English speakers choose photos one and three to be the most similar. Brittany about to kick the ball. Christina about to kick the ball, which suggests that English speakers emphasize temporal aspects of a scene rather than relationships between the objects. Now, there's a lot more in here, but I thought that simple experiment was really fascinating. If many definitions of knowledge and understanding are something along the lines of the ability to see connections, to draw parallels, to say, ah, this is like this. Um, you know, those aha moments are realizing similarity between objects or between concepts. And when you ask somebody which of these pictures are, is more similar to the other, based on the language you have and the, and the structure of that language, 
I would naturally think like the most English speakers did that three pictures, um, one, you know, two with some woman about to kick a ball and one with a ball that had already been kicked. I would say those two with someone about to kick the ball are the most similar. They're doing the exact same action to different people, but someone who doesn't have verb tenses for before, during, after it's more about person and ball and same person and ball, same person and ball, different person and ball. The first two are going to be more similar. I think that's really fascinating. And there's something in here about the power of language to alter our understanding. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know where else to go with that. I mean, I have some other stuff I want to bring up uh, about this chapter, but I want to I want to just get you to riff on that for a minute and give me your thoughts, because you've done a lot more thinking about language and, and meaning than I have. Yeah, you know, uh, so, you know, this reminds me of Terrence McKenna has a phrase that he likes to use that he calls linguistic momentum. And, and, and by that phrase, he refers to the power of our metaphors to move us past the ability to understand one another. Um, you know, you and I talked before about George Lakoff's book, Metaphors We Live By, where he talks about a similar type of concept where he says a metaphor has a dual function. It simultaneously reveals and conceals. It, it literally limits your ability to understand certain things by blinding you to them, and it accentuates your ability to understand other things by highlighting or emphasizing particular aspects. And so how this plays out in experience, the language that we use to describe things, the metaphors that we invoke when we're trying to make sense out of our experiences, it, it literally does alter the experience itself. So again, to quote McKenna, and I quote him because he references him in this book, and part of the title comes from McKenna. It's called Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. He's referring to the machine elves or the DMT elves that Terrence McKenna refers to from his uh, experiments with, with psilocybin. But uh, McKenna says that we live in a syntactical universe where the world is made up of language. And if you want to alter an experience, you need to find out like the underlying linguistic code. That even resonates with the sort of spiritual worldview of Christianity, right? Where in the beginning was the word, and, and, and you see that in the book of John or in the book of Genesis, the idea that God created the world through the spoken word. And, and, in, from, and in fact, that God is a word. The word was God. And in, in the same chapter, he talks about the Kabbalic different words for God that can't be pronounced, but that there's this concept that the word and the being are somehow inseparable. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and, and you also, uh, you were talking about on your Facebook post recently about words that you love, and it was inspired by reading this book. And one of the words I put in there was the word abracadabra, which is a word that, you know, we grew up hearing as children and TV shows on magic, but that phrase means I create as I speak. And the implication of the etymology there is that the foundation for magic is an understanding of language and how the map making tendencies of language dictate what and how we experience things. So even if you're not into things like magic, mysticism and spirituality, I think there are everyday secularized examples of this that, that indicate that there's a lot of untapped potential to you know, this, uh, how we apply the idea of the way language affects experience. Think about conflicts, for instance. Most conflicts are, are, are easily resolved simply by finding the right words to use when communicating with that other person. That The hard part is figuring out what words will work 
But once you figure that out, it almost becomes the case that you can talk with anyone about anything. You can say even the harshest, most offensive things if you say it right, if you pick the words that resonate with that person. And the reverse is also true. You can say the most beautiful sounding things, but if you pick the wrong words, if, 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 if the timing isn't right, if the metaphors are wrong, it fails. That's why there's a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, a loud blessing spoken early in the morning will be taken as a curse. You know, um, there's a lot to be said about how you say things and how you experience things. You know, I, I even think about the, the, the sort of cliche um, distinction between challenges and problems. You know how some people say, don't call it a problem, call it an opportunity, right? And, and, we, and we sort of roll our eyes at that person and we say, Oh, you're just being so cheesy. And, you know, I call it a problem. And if you approach it legalistically like that, as if it's a sin to use the word problem, it doesn't take you anywhere. But if you actually conduct these kinds of experiments with language, you will find that you open up new possibilities for yourself. So here's one example I'll use. Robert Anton Wilson popularized a concept called E prime, which is really sort of rooted in, you know, um, general semantics and neuro linguistic programming. And the idea of E prime is basically you eliminate all forms of to be from your speech. So instead of saying things like um, Michael Jackson is better than Justin Bieber, you would say, I prefer Michael Jackson's music to Justin Bieber's music. Instead of saying uh, vanilla ice cream is better than strawberry ice cream, you say, I like vanilla ice cream more than I like strawberry ice cream. You eliminate all forms of 2B. Now, what this does, if you actually practice it and push yourself, I did an experiment where I only spoke in E prime for about a week. I didn't tell anybody. I just, <laughs> you are so weird. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody about it, but I just said, I'm only going to speak in E prime for a week. So I, I would never say things like, Wait, that, oh, man. That sentence violated E prime, didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, rephrase it for me. Okay, so um, to, to, to say uh, – wait, wait. What did I say? Give me my sentence. Where you said, um, I, I'm only going to speak in E prime for a week? Yeah, so um, I, I wouldn't say um, – let's say um, – yeah, I, I can just say I'm only going to speak in E prime. Wait, am I violating E prime yeah, there? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. I was trying to yeah. think through it. No, no, I'm, I'm only referring to uh, my subjective experience here. I, yeah, you wouldn't say I am an E-prime speaker. Yeah, or, or, or I wouldn't say uh, E-prime e is a great tool. I, I wouldn't say something like that. I would just say I had fun speaking in E-prime, right? Um, I, I would never so say – So is this like uh, a denial of objective reality? So here's the thing. If you look at it like a philosophical commitment or if you practice it legalistically – it just becomes a really annoying exercise that doesn't do anything for you except get you into arguments with people that think you're denying objective reality. However, as a sort of psychonautic type experiment, you know, as an experiment in just playing around with different ways of, of seeing things, it, it's not only a fun challenge to do, but what it actually does is it, it, is it produces this sort of shift in consciousness where you become aware of all the ways in which you can personalize experience and, and put subjectivity back into the heart of experience. So instead so, of talking about how things are, you become more conscious of 
what it is about yourself that makes you enjoy things. Did you did you gain you. a lot from doing that for a week? I, I did. It, it was fun. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it for a week. I don't think that's necessary. It was just like um, appealing to me. But I would say try to do E-Prime for a day. Just see if you can do it for a single day. You, you, you'll, you'll realize how unnecessarily opinionated we often can be. We say a lot of things as if they are hardcore facts. This is the way it is. We speak that way a lot. But you'll be amazed at how many situations you can neutralize simply by putting subjectivity back into it. So instead right, of I'm saying, gonna, I'm going to throw this, out a oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So instead of saying something like this situation stinks or this situation is difficult or they're not being fair, you can say simply things. You can say things like I would like to have more fun. You know, um, I would like to enjoy this experience more. I would like to do it another way. And, and it actually put, puts you in more of a solution mindset rather than a this is the way it is. Reality is fixed mindset. Reality becomes more malleable. I would not recommend writing that way. Don't you think that makes just like horrible writing? When someone always says, in my opinion, or this may be, or this is more... This then instead of just saying, you know, failure sucks. Great sentence. Instead saying something like failure can be less fun than winning. Right. I mean, come on. It just makes I, bad writing. I personally enjoy winning more than <laughs> because, because I think you have yeah, yeah. to when you're writing on a specific topic. If people are practicing the charitable interpretation principle that we talk about, which many people don't, but that's their problem, not yours as a writer, um, then it should be understood as a given that you're writing about this topic in this context and you are not attempting to explain all truths in all contexts for all types of reality in this, you know, in this single essay. So just write it like you mean it. Write it like it's true. Say the truth that you believe to be true about this particular instance. Yeah, that, that, that's why I love the discussions we have about looking at ideas as conceptual tools and understanding that every idea can work for you or against you, depending on the context. So I think E-Prime is a really fun experiment to do, especially when it comes to your self-talk. It, it can really change the way you experience physical reality by challenging you to think about problems especially in an entirely different way and, and speaking in that way can help resolve conflict but i agree with you when it comes to writing i think what makes writing interesting is when you have a point of view you don't need to say in my opinion the fact that you're writing it reveals to me that it is your opinion be strong that's what makes writing interesting okay when you're strong yeah. all right so to do something that you and i both love to do which is to say X is valuable. And then the opposite of X is also valuable, uh, which is a, a lot of fun. Like, you know, don't take anything personally, take everything personally. Um, yeah. and I think both those can be true. So I'm going to take the opposite stance as well. I actually agree that there's a lot of power in your sort of self-talk and the language that you use instead of saying, you know, Oh, we have a problem saying, Oh, we have an opportunity, like seeing problems as opportunities, the obstacle as the way that's really powerful. I also think if you get too hung up on the words involved, you actually become more a slave to words. If you get so obsessed with making sure you don't say mm -hmm. things in a negative way or whatever, and sometimes taking the opposite approach and just owning a negative word and thereby de depriving it of its power, making it not fearful anymore is really, really 
powerful way to sort of um, take charge of your life. I'll give you an example. So if you're going to try to use the like no negative self-talk and see all problems as opportunities and be really mindful of the power of those words to shape your thoughts and your and limit yourself. And you're in an interview and someone says, okay, uh, give me your strengths and weaknesses, right? And you say, well, um, I have strengths and I have unmanifested strengths, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that voice, man. I love that voice. Immediately, it's like, okay, this is someone who's terrified of using the word weakness. It's almost become like a, like a, a word that has power over them and they don't yeah. dare utter it. I remember sometimes growing up, my mom would say things like, you know, don't say, you know, I hate my hair. That's, that's like negative. That's almost like cursing yourself. You know, there's power in yes. that and there's, and there's truth to that. But the minute you become so afraid of it, now you're, you're a slave to not saying the word, you know? And so sometimes just being able to say, oh man, let me tell you, I can tell you three things that I absolutely suck at. These are my weaknesses. And I just know that I suck at them. And you know, good thing. I also hate them. So I don't really care. I just try not to do them. I would love if somebody says that in an interview, instead of trying to turn a weakness into a strength, you know, Oh, what is my weakness? I care too much. I work too hard. You know, um, <laughs> my weaknesses are really opportunities, right? Just own it and be like, I suck at something. And that doesn't scare me. I don't feel like a failure because I've used the word suck to describe my abilities when it comes to some particular thing. I think, I think not being afraid to just embrace the negative words sometimes, you know, I'm yeah. depressed. Just admitting it and not being afraid of that sometimes can help. You know, I, I come from the same kind of home, man. My mom never let us Don't say speak things that like yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. If my brother made a funny joke and I said, dude, you're killing me. My mom would be like, no, 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 no. Don't say that, baby. Don't say he's killing you. Say he's making you laugh. So she was on top of language, man. And sometimes that really helped. Right. So when she would say things like someone would say, TK, can you play the piano? And I would say, no, I can't. My mom would say, don't ever say you can't. Say you haven't applied yourself to learning how to do it yet. Yes. And learning to think in that way was very empowering because in I- the, it, In terms of choice, like yeah. I am choosing not to, oh, can you come out and have drinks with us? It's okay if you say to them, no, I can't. But thinking to yourself, I am choosing to put something else higher on my set of preferences than this. Like that's just really empowering and valuable. Yes. And, and, and I think at the heart of it all, you got to maintain a sense of humor. Uh, uh, me talking about a sense of humor. You got to maintain a sense <laughs> of humor. You have to maintain what the, <laughs> what the jokesters among us call a sense of humor, which I have studied. So, dude, I, I walked into a, a FedEx and um, you know, I, I was getting ready to ship a package. And this guy walks in who apparently knows the other people that work there. And, uh, and someone says, what's up, dude? And he says, hey, you know, another day, another dollar. And somebody responded by saying, ha, another day, another dime. And then the other person said, man, another day, another nickel. And then someone else said, what a nickel? And then they all started to laugh. Now, because of the way my mom raised me to be <laughs> hypersensitive about language. Excuse dude, me. <laughs> excuse me. I, I feel so uncomfortable. I, I, I wanted to just turn into Steve Urkel and be like, guys, please don't confess this kind of limitation. Please don't speak in this way. <laughs> the value of a medium of exchange is entirely subjective and a wooden nickel in the right context could be more valuable than all of these things. Yes. I, I really wanted to do that, man. But I, I had to catch myself and say, TK, chill, man. They're just joking around. And I think you need to have that attitude with everything that you do. Like, 
chill out, enjoy it, enjoy it. Don't just pay attention to the words you use. Also pay attention to the way you feel when you're using the language. All right, I, 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 wanna, I wanna change gears here and, and go back to something else you said and talk a little bit about the concept of a curse. Since we're talking about language, I grew up hearing curse words and being discouraged from using curse words and things like the F-bomb, all of the four-letter words that they bleep out on, on television. And most people are taught these are what curse words are. They're inappropriate to use in these contexts and so forth. But I think when you look a little deeper into language, you find that a curse word is really a curse word. It's a word that limits your ability to understand things and achieve things. And I think it's actually a good I think it's a good time for people to reevaluate what their understanding of curse words are, because people often stop themselves from saying, you know, the F-bomb, but they go on to use other kinds of language that is self-defeating in a lot of different ways, not just language like I can't do this, but also they, they hang on to the same old stale metaphors that close them up to possibilities. So I, I think if you're going to be the kind of person that says that takes a moral stance on cursing, don't just pay attention to things like the F-bomb. Pay attention to the words that you use that might be limiting your possibilities in life. Hmm. Um, there's a couple other things in this chapter that really stuck out at me that I wanted to to touch on. Um, let me try to decide which one I want to do next. Well, one just quick thing that I thought was really powerful where, you know, he's he's sharing all this common stuff. Everybody's heard like, oh, did you know that, you know, such and such language is more advanced than English because they have 17 words for love or, you know, uh, Eskimos have like 20 words for snow. And the common rejoinder is, yeah, so does English. You can call it light snow, fluffy snow, hard snow, frozen snow, slurry, slush, like, and I think both of those things, there are truth to both of them. Like, I think it gets over dramatized, you know, the, Oh, there are so many more words for love in this language. So therefore their understanding is more nuanced. Yeah. But English has more like more of just raw vocabulary words than any language on earth. And there's infinite combinations. You can add a bunch of adjectives and modifiers to describe things, but yes, there's something in here where he says he uses the example of the word graphaloon, which is a made up word from, well, I guess all words are made up, but it's from Kurt Vonnegut. And a graphaloon is like a large, slow, kind of absurd bureaucratic body that has a hard time taking action and constantly obsesses over process before deciding something. And he says, the author says, in in some there's some truth to the fact that I can describe what a graphaloon is without using this word that Vonnegut has has coined. But I gain some kind of power by having a single word for it. There's something different about having a single word for a complex concept that enhances your power. And I think we've all learned this when we learn new vocabulary words and then we start to use them. We feel like we have more power. We have like a, a shortcut. It's like a secret code to the world, you know? And you kind of, it's like a cheat code on a video game, right? Like you can do all these things one at a time, but if you have a cheat code that lets you lump them all together in one big package and do everything at once, it's like you get to jump ahead and there's something powerful about a unique word that encapsulates multiple concepts. You know, light, fluffy snow that shines when the sun reflects off of it 
might mean the same thing, but having a single word to represent that, there's something powerful about that. Even, even just if, if the only power is the exclusivity you gain by having a small club of people who understand that single word. I mean, this is what the academic disciplines are like. The fact that, you know, you can use words that are only used within that discipline and only those who understand that discipline know them, even though you could explain it in plain English with three or four words, there's a power to creating a sort of club that lets you move at a faster pace or process ideas in a different way. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of that in my life. Do, do you have any examples of like a single word that just gave you power? For me, I, I think it was the word no. <laughs> and most people tap into the power of that word when they're a kid. It took me a long time to discover no. But but I feel like that word gave me so much power. Not Not like, oh, I'm unable to fulfill that request, but no just gave me a certain kind of power. You know what? I'm going to, okay. So here's one. This was on my list of favorite words as well. And I'm going to look up the meaning just to, to see, because it's one of those where I could string together a bunch of words that could cover the meaning. Um, but I don't know if it's exactly right. Like there's nothing else that quite captures it. Okay. So the word is disabuse. Like when I first mm. came across the word disabuse, I fell in love with it. First, I love the sound. It's got sort of an edginess to it. Like it's got the word abuse in there, but it's not meant in the same way. And to say, oh, let me just disabuse you of that notion real quick. There's something about that that's so much better than let me persuade you that this idea is mistaken real quick. The word disabuse, like it, there's some power in being able to use it for me. I think that just, it just captures something, persuade you out of a bad idea, which there's so many places where that could like mean different things or go different directions. Disabuse. It's just like this, this word that, that captures it all. And there's no, it doesn't leave you any room. Like I'm going to disabuse you of this notion. Um, I don't know. That one's a, that's just a small example for me, but, um, even just in playfulness, like Kafka-esque, right? Which is, which is, you know, comes from uh, Kafka's sort of lampooning of, similar to Graffaloon, of like bureaucratic, endless systems, labyrinthine, labyrinthine's another one, um, a runaround, a constant absurd, you know, paperwork and all these processes that's almost intended to drive you mad. Kafka-esque is just so powerful or, or even saying, oh, this is a labyrinthine process versus, man, they just keep giving me the runaround and making me go. Like there's something that comes with that. Um, I don't know. So it makes me think of like, I want to, I want to coin more words. I want to start <laughs> just coming up with new words for myself. We've talked about this before with, with black culture. Like you can just use a word <laughs> and it can yeah. just wrap up a whole bunch of concepts, you know? Oh, totally do. Like, words and phrases are created on the spot and they're and they're instantly downloaded into the entire culture yeah, i mean like so think, every- think of words like like front <laughs> like why you fronting or like right, right like step to this or flex those all have like simple normal meetings but within like a hip-hop song they encompass a whole rich set of like they carry weight you know oh man and, and, and even when hearing it for the first time it's like I got the download. I know exactly what it means. <laughs> Never heard fronting before. Know exactly what it means when you and, ask me why I'm fronting. <laughs> and there's almost nothing worse than when someone asks you to define it. Like, you know, I'll be listening to some hip hop <laughs> song. And I'll be like, you know, fronting ain't saying nothing. But I'm singing along and my wife's like, 
So fronting, is that like when someone <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And what she says is like accurate, but I'm almost like offended. Like you can't, you can't define it. You take the power away. You can't speak it. It just, it just means what it means. Don't ask me to define it, you know? <laughs> right. Fronting is when you put on a mask to <laughs> deceive your audience into thinking you are, it's like, oh man, I don't even want to use the word anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. So um, one other thing that I wanted to touch on in this chapter. And this, this was a really, this is a really cool moment. Actually, there are two, two other things in here. So the, the first one, we've talked a bunch about the series Breaking Smart, uh, which is phenomenal. And the first season of this series of 20 some essays is really all around the simple concept that um, Mark Andreessen is, is, I don't know if he coined the phrase, but he's most famous for it. Software is eating the world. And so breaking smart is all about that concept. And interestingly enough, Venkatesh Rao, the author of breaking smart immediately starts out by saying software is the next great soft technology. And the only other two we've ever really had in history are language and money. These great soft technologies that are like platforms that enable us to leap forward in progress in unimaginable ways. So he's comparing software to language um, and that phrase software is eating the world. So I come to the end of this chapter and there's like 15 quotes, like I said, and I actually decided to read them. And there's a quote from Mark Pessy, uh, who has a book called Book of Lies, I guess. Sounds like one that you would read. Um he says, the universe is a linguistic process. We know that words shape the world as we see it, but now we have come to understand that words shape the world as it is. The more we learn about how to modify the world, the more that language becomes convergent with reality. Words are colonizing the world. Now, when I heard words are colonizing the world, I immediately thought software is eating the world. And I think there's yeah. just so much, I don't even know what to extract from it now. I got to let it, I got to let it ruminate, but there's so much to be extracted from this software language analogy and the way that they not own, they're not just tools for us accomplishing sort of objective conceptual tasks. They actually shape reality itself in some powerful ways that are maybe hard to grasp. So language words are colonizing the world equals software is eating the world. You have any thoughts on that? I really didn't have anything to say except for it just stuck out to me. Well, n not any thoughts on that particular phrase itself, although it resonates with me, but there, there was a point you made to me before, and, and I'd love to hear you expound on it if you remember, but it was about how there's this correlation between success slash happiness and the ability to um, effectively create or use analogies. This makes me think of that. Do you remember making that point? Uh, I might have earlier in this podcast said something about knowledge and understanding. <laughs> this is a different conversation. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I vaguely remember. Yeah. 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 Okay. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. You want me to say something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like the, the Chris Farley SNL interview. It's like, dude, do you remember you remember seeing Die Hard? Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, you remember you remember uh, the part when you, you didn't have any shoes on and uh, that was awesome. <laughs> so for real though, were you going further with that or were you just gonna ask me uh, what it was that I said? No, so I, I wanted to, you to expound on that because this phrase, language is colonizing the world, like, the, like uh, Vankatesh's phrase, software is eating the world. It's an example of how 
someone can give you either an analogy or a metaphor that produces a certain kind of emotional response that makes you motivated in a way that a mere understanding of the concept itself does not do. I, I remember a guy said to me one time when, when I was going through a tough time, he said, you can either be the bug or the windshield. And that's all he said, right? And <laughs> when he said it, it, it pulled me out of my situation and it made me just like get up and do everything that I knew I needed to do, like no questions asked. And if you were to ask me, well, what do you think he meant by that? I could give you an explanation, but I already had that understanding before he said that to me. But there was something about the bug and the windshield image for me, that language that made a thought I already understood come alive in a different way. And I remember you saying that there is a correlation between being successful and, and having that ability to create analogies and metaphors okay. that can help you. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm remembering, um, I had this like epiphany and now I've forgotten most of it. And we might, I don't, I don't think we talked about it in a previous podcast episode. If we did, I apologize to, um, our four we did listeners. It. We did it. Um, okay, good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But it was basically, I, I remember I was meeting with somebody, I think it was a business owner, and he whipped out some analogy like, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't know. A rising tide lifts all boats or whatever, you know, some some sort of analogy of to sports or war or something. Um, or it might have even been the one in uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things that, you know, you don't sometimes, you know, you always look for the silver bullet a better strategy is just to fire thousands of lead bullets. And, or I think it was a surfing analogy. Like you've got the perfect surfboard, it's waxed up. And as soon as that wave comes, you are going to kill it. The only question is when the wave will come, how close is it? How big will it be? Um, you know, it is coming. And it was, and it was like, like, just like with you, it just spoke to me at the perfect time and I got it and I understood it. And I remember thinking, of all the really highly successful people I've met, I've had the privilege of meeting many, especially when I was in fundraising. One thing in common, they're all full of this like colloquial folk wisdom. At least it could come across that way with all these little phrases and they're all these little analogies, constantly making analogies, you know, well, throw the first pitch or whatever. And I thought, I think that's more than coincidence. I think great leaders and builders and people who are capable of going from idea to action and, and implementation and rallying people around a vision, I think one of the abilities they have more than most people, and I think it can be learned, I don't think it's just inherent, is the ability to, to make analogies to absolutely everything. That every conflict, every struggle, every challenge, every triumph, everything can easily be turned into some, you know, can, can, you can, you can draw on a scene from Braveheart or whatever. You can turn it into a metaphor, surfing, fighting, sports, dating, whatever it is. There's some ability to just quickly conjure up a, a, an analogy to something else. And I don't know if this is true, but I started playing around with this concept that like our ability to draw comparisons, to make analogies and metaphors is directly proportionate to how far we can go in overcoming challenges and succeeding. Like sometimes you can't, and you know this, you know this with MBA metaphors, sometimes you can't quite get over a problem or at least muster up the inspiration to keep fighting it 
until you settle on the perfect metaphor. I've had times with you before where we've been, you know, going at it, yelling at each other about something we're working on with Praxis and it's like, we're not quite getting it. And then finally you'll be like, you know what? I get it now. This is game five of that series where Michael and Scotty were pl- right. And, and truly yeah. like that it will open up. And I think our ability to do that is really, really important, really important. And it's just, it's just too, it's like not, it can't be a coincidence that the, the most profound leaders and most successful people I know are just like a fountain of metaphors. There you go. There's one right there. Uh, you know, they're just, they're just dripping with, uh, clever analogies, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You know, this, uh, th- this reminds me of a part in this book, the same chapter you're referring to where he refers to the concept of language as a skin. And, and we, we typically look at, you know, uh, like we have. Are you looking first. at the book right now? Or did you just remember that one of the many subsections in this chapter is called language as a skin? I don't even remember if it's a subsection. I just it remember is. that it's a I just, concept. I was just floating past it. Man, you remember everything you read. Okay, go ahead. No, I was. Yeah, yeah so, so he, he talks about the idea of language as a skin where we first have these thoughts and we encapsulate the thoughts into words and we sort of use words as these carriers of the energy of thought and feeling or what have you. So language is just the skin within which we dress our thoughts. But he goes on to present a couple of other alternatives for how we understand language. And one of them is that language and thought is identical, that that essentially thought is a kind of internal speech so that when you change the language, you change the thought and you change the experience. So this relates to a blog post Seth Godin recently wrote. I think this was maybe two or three days ago where he talked about narratives and feelings. And he says how most feelings, when left alone, tend to come and go in this cyclical kind of way. If you feel angry right now and you just leave the feeling alone, you'll be over it probably after a day or two. But feelings tend to be sustained not because of the nature of emotion itself, but because of the narratives that we attach to those experiences. You know, so it's it's someone says something to me or someone steps on my toe. I get a little angry. I leave the feeling alone. It subsides. But what usually happens is I have a narrative going on that says, man, this person doesn't respect me or I can't stand the fact that people never watch where they're going or why does this sort of thing always happen to me? If I have that kind of narrative going on, then that feeling of being angry might have a little bit more life. So now when you think about most of your life, most of your life consists of memory and memories exist in your consciousness. Like your past doesn't exist as a physical event standing in front of you right now. So when someone made you angry yesterday or 10 years ago, as a physical event, that's not even real. It exists as a set of images in your head that you have this narrative about. So most of your past, most of what dominates your life consists of self-talk. And and so the idea proposed here is that if you change that self-talk, if you change the narrative or your particular habits for how you narrate, you pretty much change the experience. Not That's not just a metaphor, but that's a literal truth because most of the experience is thought. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just thinking through more of this power to, to make analogies. When I'm having a hard time, especially with something business related, my brother is one of the first people that I go to. And 
he is ridiculous at this. Like everything I call him about, we'll talk through all kinds of stuff in normal language. But usually what I walk away with, and usually this is the first thing he says, is some metaphor that just does the trick. You know, like every time I'll call him and be like, ah, so we've got this and this and struggling with this and blah, 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 trying to grow in this area. And I feel like we're kind of, we're kind of got to stuck a bottleneck here and blah, blah. And he'll be like, Isaac, you know, he always, I always just imagine him like sitting back in his chair. <laughs> He's like, Isaac, you're like a perfectly polished and waxed Ferrari that's going five miles an hour. And it, and it's like just it's always like oh that's it I've got it there's something there's something in that and it's easy for that to just like cheesy made up stuff and make it sound like it's profound um, but I think that the way that those metaphors work is that they work only for specific people in specific instances like if you shared that insight with the world I just don't think it would have enough application to enough people to be like wow this is profound like it's got to be. You know, when I read the hard thing about hard things, the lead silver bullets analogy, that wasn't profound to me at the time I read it. About six months later, it came to mind again and it was so profound. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most valuable analogy I've ever had in my life. Um, so anyway, uh, what, one other thought on this book, because you, you touched on it too with memory. So there is a lot of research that suggests, and I know you're really interested in neuroscience and you wanted to, you actually wanted to be a neuroscientist when you were young, uh, specifically because you wanted to understand what makes people laugh and why all your friends were capable of doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of research that suggests that our memories are verbal, that the centers of our brain that process language are like associated with memories. And so when you think of a memory, you're incapable of thinking of the experience without accessing your, your brain's language center. So you're thinking about, oh, I was sitting at a table with TK. If I didn't know the word sitting and table and at, and all, like I wouldn't be able to actually have that memory, that our, our memories are inseparable from language. And this is one of the things that um, people who have used the drug ayahuasca, which is like a very slow releasing form of DMT, which like, gives people these crazy experiences, but this, this is like a long process. I've never tried it myself, but I'm pretty fascinated by it where they say one of the things about ayahuasca, which is why some people will use it in therapy for people who have been traumatized when they're very young is that ayahuasca gives you this experience of almost observing your memories as a third party, but it allows you to access the part of your brain that has pre-verbal memories. So before you knew how to speak, when you were one, two, whatever, before you really, before your memories were verbal, because once you have language, now your memories are like locked into language and that's how you describe and think. And so your memories are verbal. Your pre-verbal memories, since now you're a person who speaks and has language, you like can't access those because there's you don't have any any way to connect preverbal memories to your verbal processing. And I don't know how true this is, but this is one of the claims that people have made that it allows you to access and experience preverbal memories, which I find to be really interesting. And in this chapter, there are some people, one person with Asperger's, who says they think in entirely in images and pictures without words. And they actually they are a designer. They design some kind of products, and they like picture the entire new product. And using it and working with it and everything in like a 360 degree movie before they even know how to describe it or anything like that. And Einstein used to say that all of his breakthroughs were like 
images of him experiencing things, riding on a lightning bolt, whatever, and they weren't verbal. So maybe some people have this ability more than others, but what are your thoughts on memory and language and sort of like memory as independent from the language that we use to process it? I, I think the concept of pre-verbal memory is really fascinating. I'm, I'm not sure what the, the scientific community has to say about it, or I, I haven't read a lot of philosophy of it. Um, you know, w- when you talk about this ayahuasca experience as one that's supposed to lead to that, it, it definitely makes me intrigued because for me, I, I tend to side with the view that that memory and thought and language are one, that, 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 that all three of those are just sort of like differing manifestations of the same thing. So I, I'm not sure what to make of the idea of a memory without words. I'm not, I'm not sure what that means, but I, I, I guess maybe I can sort of, um, well, have you ever had a dream where the next morning, you know, you forget dreams so quickly, like maybe sure. immediately you can describe it, but over time, most dreams are rare exceptions, but like where you have this impression or image, like I, I feel like, but you can't, you literally can't put it into words. And almost the minute you try to describe it, poof, it vanishes. Have you ever had that experience? Oh yeah. I have that experience all the time, but, but even, and that's what we call like emotional memory, right? Um, where we kind of remember how an experience made us feel, even if we can't uh, recall the details. But even then I sort of look at that as, as a sort of gap between my skill and my interior experience. I I may not remember all the details. I have a vague collection. I have a current emotional impression based on what I experienced. But the bigger problem is that I am not a master of of language and and, and I can't sufficiently tell you what it was. And, and, And maybe the vagueness in my speech is also, you know, connected to the vagueness in my memory. So I'm I'm not sure if I look at that as evidence of pre-verbal memory. I, I look at it more as just my inability to talk, something that I could improve upon. So I thought today that we would talk a little bit about this book and then we would get into all kinds of philosophy about the immortality of the soul and other stuff. We didn't have time to get to anything else, uh, which was amazing though. This was actually, there was a lot of good stuff in here. Um, I got to give a plug to all you listeners. Uh, if you want to get a super quick, three quick hits, midweek quick hits every Wednesday in your inbox, really short paragraph next to each one and a link. So, um, last week I had, you know, you plus a microphone is better than Harvard. Quick paragraph about it. Here's a link to the article. Uh, you know, there's a company that's making a Google search for audio files, which will open up all kinds of things in the audio format. Here's a quick link. I do this every Wednesday, Wednesday, quick hits, just go to isaacmorehouse.com and there's a couple places there to sign up for my email list and you'll get these in your inbox every Wednesday. And I try to make them really fun, really quick. And, uh, you know, you might not find something in there you like every week. Maybe you'll find three things you like in there some week and none the next, but they're, they're really fun, simple. And, uh, I think you'd enjoy it. So go sign up at isaacmorehouse.com for midweek quick hits. TK, I'm about to take a long road trip. Uh, so recommendations this week, maybe you can make one that's like a good long audio book or something that I can listen to. Oh man, I, I'm not even sure what's available out there for audiobook because I don't, I don't do a lot of audiobooks nowadays. You I just, only read books that are printed on like typewriters and with, you know, plastic <laughs> covers and stuff. 
Yes. <laughs> if it's a book, I prefer to read it. I tend to use audio for things like podcasts. All right. You're no good. Uh, well, what do you recommend <laughs> then for our listeners? So, yeah. So since we talked about language, I would recommend a book called The Tyranny of Words by Stuart Chase. And it's basically um, influenced by, you know, Alfred uh, Korzybski's uh, general semantics theory, um, his, his original book, Science and Sanity, which is a pretty difficult book to get a hold of. But it's a much more accessible version of that philosophy as applied to the pragmatic aspects of life itself. But essentially, how to release yourself from the tyranny um, of, of, of your limited use of language. A, a lot of what we talked about here. The tyranny Very good of book. words. All right, good one. Well, I'm going to recommend, uh, this is actually a book that was recommended to me by Jeff Till's wife, my good friend, Jeff Till, who has his own podcast, 500 years, and he and I have done an episode together. Um, his wife mentioned this book to me and just said, oh, this is a fun book you might like. I don't even know what made her think to recommend it. It's called Lexicon and it's a novel. Um, I don't, there's some parts of it that are like the storytelling, the ending, uh, maybe I didn't care for a ton, but honestly, this is a super fun book and it's all about words like secret, you know, societies using neuro-linguistic programming. And then this sort of like, it gets way back into sort of ancient myth about powerful words and their ability to shape the world. It's super cool, super fun. It's called Lexicon. That's, that's my rec. TK, hey, man. man but, but- by the way, I'm sure there are a lot of good Oprah books that are probably on, available via audio. Oh, Just yeah. check out Oprah Oprah's book club. The words <laughs> that make you feel beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> TK, this, is, this has been a blast, man. We'll talk to you next week. Peace.